If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 119. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 73. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with the message this morning. We're going to begin by reading our passage. So I'll give you just a moment to find Psalm 119, starting in verse 73. The Bible says this, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Father, this morning we thank you for speaking to us in the scriptures. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for revealing us to yourself in your word and in Psalm 119. Father, this morning we thank you for your steadfast love and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. We pray this morning that you would give us a greater appreciation for your love and your grace and your mercy. A greater appreciation for your son. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, what we're dealing with in Psalm 119, you know by now if you've been with us, is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The poem is divided into 22 sections, one letter for each section. This is the 10th week. We've come to the 10th letter. So this is the Yod section. And I didn't even put a picture of a yod up on the screen because it just looks like a little apostrophe. It's just a little bitty tiny mark up on the top right of all of these words. If you look at verse 73 to verse 80 in the Hebrew, which moves from right to left, you see the first letter is just what looks to us like an apostrophe. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, but it's an important letter. It's actually the first letter in God's name, the first letter if you spell out Yahweh in Hebrew, and it's the letter that governs this section that we're talking about this morning. All total, there are 176 verses in Psalm 119. I just want to point out to you this morning that so far we're 80 for 80. We're batting a 1,000. Every single verse that we've looked at so far, all the way up through our text this morning, makes some reference to the Bible, to the written Word of God, starting in verse verse 1, running all the way up to verse 80. And I point that out to you this morning as a spoiler alert, because next week we're going to come to the cough section, and verse 84 will be the very first verse in Psalm 119 that does not make reference directly 
to the written Word of God. And so we'll have to deal with verse 84 and the absence of a reference to God's Word after having all of these 10 weeks where every single verse has referenced God's Word in some way with one of these terms. Law, commandment, testimonies, uh, precepts, all of these different terms. Now, I want to make an admission or a confession to you this morning. I outlined this sermon series months ago, and I went through all the different sections of Psalm 119. And most of these sections, as you read through it, it's fairly obvious to say, okay, that looks like the big thing. That looks like the emphasis, or hey, there's a word that I haven't seen in another spot. That's the thing that we're going to focus in on and center on. That's the emphasis of the passage. There were a few sections, and this is one of them, that upon first reading, I thought, I have no idea what to do with those verses. I don't know exactly what holds them together. So on my notes, on my outline, I literally put a question mark. And I said, I'll just come back to that when we get there in the fall. Well, now we're here. And so two weeks ago, I was reading ahead, and I read these verses, and I said to myself, I don't really know what's holding this section together. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. I wasn't having problems with the individual verses. Individually, these verses are straightforward, and to be honest with you, we've seen almost all of these ideas already in Psalm 119. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. If you look at verse 73... The psalmist says, give me understanding. Well, we've seen him say things like that already. He's prayed and he's asked God to help him understand his word. So we've already talked about that idea. Uh, verse 75, affliction. We've talked a lot about affliction. We're going to have a lot more to say about affliction this morning and in weeks to come. That's certainly part of Psalm 119. We've already discussed that. Look at verse 77. He talks about delighting in God's word. And we've talked about how much the psalmist loves. He has a heart that delights in the Word of God. And we want to be people who delight in God's Word. If you look at verse 78, he says that he's going to meditate on God's Word. And that's something that I've encouraged you to do throughout our walk through Psalm 119. We've said over and over and over again, most of the time our problem with memorization is that we have not meditated on the Scriptures. We've not actually filled our mind with Scripture to the point that we can memorize it and we can remember it. So all the individual pieces are pretty straightforward. It's the big picture that I was wrestling with. And I kept reading it, even this week on Monday, when the outline is due on Wednesday, to print in the bulletin, I thought, i got to have a big idea. I get all the pieces, it makes sense, but I don't see how the whole thing holds together. And then, I'll show you later where the light bulb actually went off for me, I realized the psalmist has arranged this section as a chiasm. Hebrew poets love to use chiasm. And I'll just give you a schematic on the screen to show you how this particular chiasm works. Verse 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, 79, 80. That's the verses in order. The first verse of the section goes with the last verse of the section. And they help you understand one truth. And then the second verse goes with the second to last verse, and they talk about the same thing. Verse 75 goes with verse 78, and they talk about the same thing. And at the very middle, the heart of the poem is the heart of the passage. It's the main idea of the passage. And when I saw it, I said to myself, oh, that's very obvious. The big idea of this passage is this. The Word of God calls the people of God to rest 
in the love of God. The Word of God, that's what we're dealing with in Psalm 119, calls the people of God, you and me, people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, the Word of God calls the people of God to rest in the love of God. That's what's at the heart of this chiasm. Now, before we move on, why did I tell you that story? Why did I tell you about my struggle several months ago and last week and even this week? Some of you are skeptics, which is fine, and you're saying to yourself, pastors do this kind of thing all the time. That's a humble brag. He's trying to tell us how hard it is and how much he had to wrestle with it, so then we'll think he's so super smart, and he figured it out, and he cracked the code, and we're really lucky to have him because we wouldn't have known what to do without it, and you're saying to yourself, oh, it's just a humble brag. Pastor folks do that all the, all the time. Maybe that's what I'm doing a little bit. Or maybe, maybe, as a pastor, maybe I have a sneaking suspicion about something that you've experienced in your life. Maybe I am inclined to think that there has been a time or two or three or more where you've taken your Bible and you've opened it up and you've read something in the Bible and you've closed the Bible and maybe you didn't say this out loud to anyone at all, but in your heart you felt guilty for thinking, I have no idea what that means. I don't know how that fits with anything else in the Bible, and I don't know why I need to know that information. I don't know if you've ever read through the Bible as a whole, but if you do that, you bump up against some verses, and you close the Bible, and you say, I don't know what to do with that in any way, shape, or form. I'll be honest with you. On my personal Bible reading, I like to use a journaling Bible so that I can scribble in the margins and make notes and write things down that I'm thinking because I have to put things down to really think them and process them. And I got my journaling Bible off my desk. You could go to my office and open it right now. It has lots of insightful comments in the margins. And do you know what else it has in the margins? Question marks. Question marks. Because sometimes I'm reading along and I say, I don't know what that means. And I probably ought to revisit that at some point. I probably ought to try to come back to that. I don't know right now what exactly to do with that, how to make sense of it, how to fit it in with anything else, but that's something that I need to wrestle with. And I have a sneaking suspicion that at some point in your life, you've opened your Bible, you've read it, you've closed it, and you've said to yourself, I don't really know what to do with that passage. And I'm saying to you, that's a normal experience for a Christian to have. When you have that kind of experience, what you should not do is say, this book is so dense and so obscure and so ancient, no one can ever make sense of it. I'm going to put it on the shelf and be done with it, and I'll just watch a YouTube video to figure out what I need to know. That's what you should not do. What should you do? Well, you should keep reading. And maybe you need to close it for a minute, and maybe you need to talk to God like the psalmist did in lightning bolts. Once you pray that prayer, you open your Bible back up and you start reading backwards and forwards. And I'll be honest with you, there's parts in the Bible that to make sense of, you have to go way back and there's other parts you have to go way forward. I've been teaching the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible as my job 
for 17 years now. I've read through the Bible dozens and dozens of times in the course of my personal Bible reading. And I'm just telling you, there's still times where I open it up like this week and I say, okay, I kind of get this. I don't have any big major questions, but I don't see how it all fits together. That's where meditating comes in. That's where reading and studying comes in. That's where prayer comes in. That's where going to reliable teachers comes in. And can I just give you a friendly pastoral warning? If your first teacher is a Google search, you just need to know that there are unreliable people who pay incredible amounts of money to have their answers show up first on your Google search. And it may or may not be the right answer or the best answer. You cannot just turn to the internet, to YouTube, to Google, type something in and take the first thing you get. You have to be discerning. Who's this answer coming from? Where is it coming from? Does it fit with what I know to be true about God and His Word and doctrine and theology? So I'm just telling you that I've wrestled with this text this last week. I'm telling you in your own life, in your own Bible reading, understanding God's Word will require some effort. It will require some effort on your part. And I'm also telling you that the effort that you put into understanding God's Word is worth it. It's 100% worth it. Is it always easy? Is it always quick? Nope. And Americans don't like either of those things. But it's worth it. And that's what I had to do this last week. So the big idea, the Word of God calls the people of God to rest in the love of God. The question we want to answer is how? How does the psalmist in this poem, this chiasm, you understand this is a poem within a poem, how does he encourage us to rest in God's love? And the way you answer that question is you start on the outside of the chiasm and you work to the middle of the chiasm. So that's what we'll do this morning. Number one, the psalmist wants us to know that the creator has authority over the creature. This is pretty basic stuff, but it's really important. There is a creator, and he has made a creation, specifically creatures created in his image, and the creator has authority over creation. Pretty simple. Look what the psalmist says in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Now, you understand God is a spirit. He doesn't actually have hands. Why does he describe it this way? Well, he's talking and God using his hands to fashion us. He's talking about God being personally involved in the creation of every human life. He's thinking maybe of Psalm, uh, excuse me, Genesis 2, where you read about God stooping down in the dirt and forming man from the ground and forming woman from the side of man and breathing life into the creatures that he created into his image. It's all very personal, very intimate in God creating human beings. Maybe the psalmist here is thinking about what the psalmist said in Psalm 139 where he talked about God knitting us together in our mother's womb. You understand that God doesn't have knitting sticks But the psalmist is saying to you, God is personally involved in the creation of each life. He's the creator and he creates people in his image. And as the creator, he has authority over his creation. Verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding 
that I may learn your commandments. Why would the psalmist ask God to help him understand and learn his commandments? How God wanted his people to live. It's because he understands rightly that the Creator has authority over us. Number one, He has authority to tell us how to live. The Creator has the authority to tell His creatures how to live their lives. That's why the psalmist connects these two ideas in verse 73. You made me. You formed me. You're my Creator. Therefore, I want to listen to you about your commandments so that I understand how you want me to live my life. If you meet a person and living in the country you live in, in the time you live in, this is very likely, that you will meet people who insist on living life however they want to live it. You understand, biblically speaking, that person has rejected the truth about the Creator. That's the logic of Romans 1, and that's the logic of Psalm 119. When a person says, I insist on living my life however I want to live it. Does that sound like anybody you've heard lately on social media, on the news, at school, at work? I'm going to do it my way. What that person is saying is, I reject the fact that there is a creator who has authority over me. Now, let me let you in on something. You live in the edge of the Bible Belt. There's an awful lot of people that you and I rub shoulders with that want to hold on to both of these things. They want to say, I believe there's a God. I believe there's a creator. I believe there's somebody out there. I believe in a higher power. I believe in a divine being. I believe in a first cause, an unmoved mover, whatever. But I'm going to do it my way. And what I'm telling you this morning is biblically you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't do both. When you recognize that there is a creator, by definition you're saying, you're the creator and I'm the creation, therefore you have authority over me. And conversely, when you say, I'm going to do it my way, what you're saying is, I reject the idea that you're the creator and that you have any authority over me. So, the creator has authority over the creature. He has a right to tell us how to live. And along with that, God the Creator has the right to demand perfection. Perfection. Look at verse 80. This is the verse that lines up with 73. Verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. He's not just praying that his words would be blameless. He's not just praying that his actions would be blameless, but he's praying that his heart would be blameless, without blame. Why would the psalmist pray to God and ask Him to be at work in his life so that his heart would be blameless? It's because the psalmist recognizes there is a Creator, the Creator is holy, and as a holy Creator, God has every right to demand that we be blameless, that we be perfect. So, it's fall. Everybody's excited about cooler temperatures. Everybody's excited about football. 
There was a lot of football over the last couple days. I don't want to talk about any of that because it'll make half of you mad and the other half really happy. So let's talk about baseball. It's also time for the playoffs. And I think everybody can be happy this morning about baseball. That may not be true in a week, but today we're all happy. All the Rangers fans are happy. All the Astros fans are happy. Both teams won their opening game in the playoffs. So everyone's excited about that. Baseball's a funny sport. It's a really funny sport. If you're a professional baseball player, if you have the ability over the course of your career to get three hits out of every ten at-bats, that's all you have to do, we'll let you bat ten times, you can strike out seven. If you can get three hits and you can do that over the course of your career, they might put you in the Hall of Fame when you retire. They might look at you and say, absolutely amazing, round of applause, put the man in Cooperstown, what an amazing accomplishment. Three out of ten, he batted 300 for his career. He's a 30% hitter. That means 70% of the time he was out. And they'll put you in the Hall of Fame. What if you could bat four out of ten? You know the last time somebody batted four out of ten, somebody batted 400? Over the course of just one season, 1941. 1941. If you can do four out of ten, people put you up there with Ted Williams and say, you're one of the greatest hitters who has ever lived in the history of baseball. For four out of ten. Meaning you got out six of ten. That's the best. What's God's standard? Three out of ten get you into Cooperstown. Will it get you into heaven? What about 400? Not many can do 400. Four out of ten? Maybe it's like the English grading system. You need a 70. Seven out of ten? Nine out of ten? James describes the standard, and you know what it is. James 2.10, James says this. If you keep the whole law but you fail in one point, you become accountable for all of it. He's not saying that all sin is the same. He's not saying that if you break one rule, you might as well break the rest of them. What he says in the very next verse is, the same God who said don't murder said don't covet. The same God who said don't worship idols is the same God who said don't steal. It's the same lawgiver. And once you break the law, you're accountable to the lawgiver. And it only takes one to fall short of God's glory. And the truth is none of us are batting 900. None of us are batting 700. None of us are at 40%, 30%. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, far short. And yet the Creator has the right to demand perfection from his creatures. He has a right to tell us how to live. He has a right to demand perfection. Truth number two, moving in. The creature should fear the creator. Logically, you could get here from what we just said, but notice how the psalmist brings you to this point. Verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. 
Verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. This is where the light bulb went off for me. I noticed the phrase, those who fear you, those who fear you. And I began looking at it and I says, oh, he says it twice. He says it once at the beginning and once in the end. Oh, he says it in the second verse and the second to last verse. And then I worked to the other verses and into the middle and it all lined up perfectly. He's talking about the fear that we ought to have of God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, it's not terror. It's not the kind of terror you would feel at a horror movie. It's not the kind of terror you would feel in the face of war or atrocity because we know that God is a good God. He's full of mercy and steadfast love, and He's faithful to His people. So we're not terrorized about God. But it's also way more than just saying, well, I respect God. I have, I have a lot of admiration for God. That's far too low of a threshold. What does it mean to fear God? Fearing God means you recognize that He's the Creator and you're not. I'm less concerned with what emotion your heart is churning around, and I'm more concerned with your understanding that there is a Creator and you're not Him. I'm also concerned with you understanding that the Bible says the Creator is holy, 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 and the Bible says you're not batting a thousand. You've fallen short. You've fallen far short of His glory. Verse 74, I want you to see the connections here. Verse 74 connects fearing God to worship. Those who fear the Lord will be people who worship. Verse 74. Those who fear you will see me and rejoice. That's worshiping with joy because I've hoped in your word. Verse 79 connects fearing God with knowing his word. Knowing his word. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Now look, you can walk through the logic of these two verses. It's not overly complicated in how the psalmist is lining up his argument. This is what I want you to see in these two verses connecting them from either end of the chiasm. The psalmist is taking the fear of God and he's connecting it to worship and he's connecting it to understanding God's Word. Those three things are connected in his mind. Fearing God, being a person who worships, and understanding God's Word. Those three things hang together in the life of a believer. And you need to understand that they feed and they fuel each other. For you to rightly worship at all, you have to have some basic elementary fear of God. And Christian worship is designed to promote and increase your fear of God. Not to make you feel terrorized about God, not to make you feel just more respect for God, but to understand the creator-creature distinction and to understand God's holiness in your sin. Those two things feed each other. They fuel each other. Christian worship is connected to knowing God's Word. The more we teach you the Bible and teach you about God, the better able you are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the more you worship God in spirit and truth, if we're doing it rightly as a church, the more you ought to be able to understand God's Word because the truths that we're singing are pulled from God's Word. These two things fuel each other. They go together. Fearing God is connected to understanding His Word. 
You can't rightly understand God's Word unless you fear God. I could take you to divinity schools and universities, campuses all around the United States, and we could talk to brilliant professors, linguists, Hebrew scholars, ancient Near Eastern scholars, Greek scholars, and they could tell you ten times more about the facts of this book than your pastor could, and they don't believe any of it. They don't fear God. They don't believe that there is a God, much less fear Him. They can tell you facts about this book, but they don't really have ears to hear it. When you have ears to hear it, the more you study this book, the greater your fear for God ought to be. Again, not terror, not respect, but understanding the creature-creator distinction and understanding God's holiness in your sin. Those things ought to be more plain to you and clear to you the more you study and the more you worship. I'm just telling you, what we do in this room, what other churches do when they gather together, and they worship, and they talk about the Scriptures, is really important. Because in God's design, it's intended to help you grow in your fear of the Lord. Right? Biblical fear. And if we bring you into this room and we put on a show to perform for you and entertain you, we've missed it. No one's going to grow in the fear of the Lord. If we come in this room and we apologize for this book and we maybe talk about a verse here or there and then I get on a soapbox and talk about whatever's on my mind over the last week, you're not going to grow in your fear of the Lord. We have to design our time together in this room in singing and in studying the Scriptures so that the fear of God is the outgrowth of that. This is one of the reasons when people say to me, look, I don't care what church, what church you go to, I just want you to go to church. I usually don't argue with people when they say that, but it gives me a lot of heartburn. Because there's a lot of churches, I'm telling you, a lot of churches that don't really want to talk to you about this book. And they really don't want to lead you into worship. They just want to perform for you or put on a show. Or maybe they're embarrassed about this book completely. Or maybe their end goal is coolness and edginess and relevance and whatever. But they are not aiming for the fear of the Lord. And I'll be honest with you, I just assume you not go to one of those churches. I most certainly want you to go. And your kids and your cousins and your neighbor and your coworker. I want them to go but I want them to go to a church. We're not the only one that does this well or that aims for this. There's others, but I want them to go to a church that is serious about promoting the fear of God in their people by teaching the Word of God rightly and by calling God's people to worship genuinely. Next, life in a fallen world involves suffering. We need to recognize there's a Creator in His authority. We need to understand this fear of God. And we need to know that life in this world involves suffering. This is 75 and 78. These two truths go together. And they're related in a, a fascinating way. Verse 75 reminds us that there may in our lives be affliction that comes from God. That's what the psalmist says. In faithfulness, he's talking to God, you afflicted me. 
God was the source of that affliction. And then down in verse 78, he says a parallel truth. He acknowledges that there are evil people who have wronged him. They've wronged him. Suffering can involve being wronged by others. It can involve infliction from God or it can involve being wronged by others. Now look, these aren't the only two things the Bible says about suffering. We could say a lot more, but we can't say less than this. And you need to understand that these two truths often go together in one single experience in your life in a mysterious way. And I'll give you some biblical examples to help help you process and understand what I'm saying. Think about the story of Joseph, the end of Joseph's life. Jacob was dead, and all his brothers were convinced that Joseph was going to pound them. And at the very end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looked at his brothers and he said, you know what? You meant evil against me. Can we just read about that in verse 78? They've wronged me with falsehood. His brothers did that. They wronged Joseph. And at the same time, Joseph said to his brothers, God had a plan for good. You afflicted me in faithfulness so that I might be kept alive and that your people might be kept alive through a famine. There's one experience of suffering for Joseph. Being sold and being beaten up and being sent off with the Midianites and being a slave in Egypt and being lied about and being thrown in prison. It was all one big ball of suffering. And he looked back on it and he said, you meant evil and God meant good in that same experience. Let's think about Paul. Paul, to the church in Corinth, spoke about a thorn in the flesh, which we're not really sure what it was. But Paul said, I had this thorn in the flesh. And right in the middle, he says, it was a messenger of Satan sent to harass me. The enemy had an aim in this thorn, and it was to harass Paul, to discourage Paul, to beat him down, to make him turn back, to make him give up. That was the enemy's aim. What was God's aim? God's aim was to keep Paul from becoming conceited. The messenger of Satan would have loved for Paul to be conceited. Satan would love nothing more for you to be proud and arrogant and haughty and boastful and conceited. He loves that. He doesn't want you to be humble. That was God's aim in the thorn. That's why when Paul said, God, would you take it away three times? God said, no. I'm not going to take it away because I have an aim in it. I have the aim to humble you, Paul. This messenger of Satan aims to destroy you, and I aim to humble you. What about the cross? What about how the apostles spoke about the crucifixion of Jesus in the book of Acts? They said this, Acts 2. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men had a name. They wanted to be done with Jesus of Nazareth. And they put him to death and he suffered. The apostles claim, not only in chapter 2 but again in chapter 4, that what happened is exactly what God wanted to happen. The suffering of his son for the salvation of his people. The enemy had a name and God had a name. That's Psalm 119. In faithfulness you afflicted me, and evil people wronged me with falsehood. 
And I'm telling you, you need to know this for your life on this earth. That might happen in the very same experience of suffering for you. And you need to know not only for this life but for the next life that those two things came together at the cross so that you could have eternal life. Human beings had ill will toward Jesus of Nazareth and they wanted him dead and they accomplished in their wickedness exactly what the Father intended to accomplish. That's the salvation of his people. One last truth. Our only hope in life and death is the love and the mercy of God. This is the heart of the chiasm. 76 and 77. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. The psalmist lived in the old covenant. And even in the old covenant he had an understanding that Yahweh the Lord was steadfast in his love. He was full of mercy. He was kind and gracious. You and I live in the new covenant. We look back to the cross and we see more clearly, not a different truth, but we see it more clearly than even the psalmist saw it, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on a cross so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. We look back and with great clarity we can see the truth of Romans 5. That God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We can see John's definition of love in 1 John 4.10. This is love. It's not that we loved God. But it's that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin. All of these verses talking about the cross rooted and grounded in the love that God has for sinful people. A love that moved the Father to send the Son. And I just have you note, in verse 76 and 77, the love of God is connected to the Word of God. And that's because it's in the Scriptures that we come to know the truth about God's love for sinners. You can look at a sunset and say, there must be a Creator. But you don't know the love that he has for you in sending his son by looking at a sunset. You can go to the ocean and you can see how vast it is. And you can say, someone must have made this. You can look to the heavens and say, surely somebody flung those stars into the sky. But it's in the scriptures, the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God, that you come to know most fully about the love that God has for sinners. So look, you look at this section as a whole, most certainly you need to know that there is a creator and that he has authority over your life and he has the right to demand perfection in your life. You need to know you've fallen short of that and you need to know that the fear of God is how you ought to respond to God. You ought to recognize him as the creator and you ought to recognize him as the holy one and you've not lived up to his standards. You need to know that as a result of our sin, suffering is a reality in this world. It's an unavoidable reality. Sometimes it will be the Lord who afflicts His people for a good purpose, and sometimes it will be evil people who wrong you with falsehood. But you will experience suffering in this life. And in all of that knowledge, 
what you rest in is God's love for His people. His steadfast love. His mercy. His not giving us what we truly deserve, but in fact giving us the opposite of what we deserve. Giving His Son to die on a cross for our sins. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Father, as your people, we are grateful for your word. Lord, there's things about you we can see and we can know in creation, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus, where your love was made manifest most fully, most clearly, most finally, we see it in the scriptures. Father, we pray this morning for ourselves. We pray that we would be people who genuinely recognize you as the creator who has authority over our lives and the right to demand perfection. Father, we want to be a church of people that when we gather together, we talk about the scriptures, we worship in spirit and truth, and we are growing in our fear of you. Father, we know that suffering is part of life on this side of eternity. We know that that's the result of our sin. Father, when in our lives you afflict us in faithfulness, we pray that you do it for our good and your glory. And Lord, when at the hands of wicked people we are wronged with falsehood, we pray that your word would be a rock underneath our feet. Father, above all, we're thankful for your love and your mercy for us. Love that resulted in you sending your Son to live for us and to die for us and to give us the gift of eternal life, the gift of knowing you. Father, this morning we're going to stop before we leave and we're going to sing about your holiness. We're going to sing about your love in sending Jesus to make a sacrifice that would reconcile us to yourself. And Lord, as we sing these biblical truths, we pray that you would deepen our fear of you. Lord, be honored in our singing. We do it for your glory and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.